Hi, everybody. Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain. I'm here with Lauren Southern. She is an independent journalist and the author of Barbarians, How the Baby Boomers Immigration and Islam Screwed My Generation. And she will soon, imminently, just about to be releasing a documentary on the South African farm murders entitled Farm Lands. You can check out her website at laurensouthern.net. We'll put the links to these below and follow her excellent Twitter feed at twitter.com forward slash Lauren Underbar Southern. Now, we have something great to talk about and something terrible to talk about. I'm a kind of good news first person, so we're going to talk about how Lauren and I are going to be going live in Australia. We are going to be doing a tour entitled Live, an Axiomatic event, and tickets are on sale now. You can check out the website at axiomatic.events and the dates. This is 2018, so if it's 2019, well, I don't know, maybe we'll be back. But you can see us uh, in Melbourne Friday, July 20th, in Perth Sunday, July 22nd, Adelaide Thursday, July 26th, Sydney, Saturday, July 28th, and Brisbane Sunday, July 29th, and early August, we're aiming for Auckland, New Zealand, it's going to be a fantastic tour. We've got great arguments, great information. There's going to be meet and greets, Q&As, and we are really looking forward to it. So just pause the video, go to axiomatic.events, pick up your tickets, and we'll see you there. With that out of the way, Lauren, my goodness, what a couple of days for you and your friends and, and people I respect. It has been quite something. Uh, what are your thoughts on what's happened with Tommy and others? It's definitely just been a roller coaster the last little bit. Um, fun fact, in, in the background of the last couple of months, Tommy and I had been working on starting a big kind of media project together. And we think that people in the government, people started to find out about this project we were doing. We were talking to other uh, producers. We were talking to film people. We wanted to set up a huge project to compete with the left-wing SJW propaganda in the UK. And throughout the creation of this project, which we were going to call The Front, I ended up getting banned from the UK. And then Tommy, of course, just a few days ago, put into prison. And this whole plan was just kind of shot and destroyed by the UK government who don't want any dissident voices. And I think that's what this all comes down to. There are a ton of people who have theories that oh, Tommy was just put in jail because he violated a suspended sentence, which I'm sure we'll get into the details of that later. But at the core of it, this would not happen to anyone else. No reporter who went and filmed a rape game trial or any kind of trial, they would at least have a proper hearing. They would at least have uh, actual few months to defend themselves. Tommy, in a matter of four hours, was taken away in a paddy wagon and sent to jail. And that is primarily because he was a dissident. He was fighting against the far left orthodoxy and the UK government, who have a completely different dream and vision for the country than the actual people living there and voting. Yeah. Well, you have free speech until you disagree with those in power in any way that affects their exercise of power. And then you find out just how limited you are. So for those who are not caught up, Let's talk a little bit about the cover story. The, so Tommy is out there and he's broadcasting and he has in the past got in trouble and got a suspended sentence for filming on or in court property. So he stayed away from the court property. He checked with the police that he wasn't on court property and he was reporting his thoughts on the trials uh, of these um, uh, Muslim, alleged Muslim rape gang members and so on. And then what happened was uh, he did yell some questions at them, uh, at these alleged criminals as they were going into the courthouse, which 
you and I and everyone on the planet has seen reporters do basically since microphones and cameras were invented and probably mm -hmm. even before then they were just yelling and writing down on a slate pad or an abacus. And then what happened was he was arrested for disturbing the peace, which is, you know, actions, as far as I understand, it's actions that you take that might create or provoke, provoke imminent violence. So this guy wandering around a largely empty street in the rain, broadcasting his thoughts on criminal proceedings, that somehow gets translated into a breach of, of the peace. And then he's taken, but the breach of the peace is not really dropped, but it's sort of replaced. Because breach of the peace is not, like it's a, a civil matter, it, and it has criminal standards of proof. So you've got to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. So I don't think they would be able to get him much on that. But the judge, I think, said that he had violated this order uh, to to not film uh, on the court property or in the court and so on. And then boom, there's no jury trial for that. Then, And so he's off to prison uh, right away. So here's what's fascinating about that. What people need to know about the first case. First of all, why is Tommy going to these court cases and yelling at Muslim rape gang members? Well, the UK has a history of trying to cover up rape gang cases, whether it be the recent Telford case or, of course, the um, Rotherham case where you've got thousands of young British girls being raped and trafficked and the police are actively covering it up. And then on top of it, when you do have cases that are actually being investigated and uh, there may be some a actual justice that will happen, they, they put a whole media ban on it, similar to Tommy's case. So Tommy is always trying to expose these rape gangs that the government refuses to talk about. And he went to this case a while back where he was, of course, yelling and having arguments with the family members about how obviously these men are trafficking young girls. And he was given his suspended sentence. So they said, you can't be reporting on this case. But this suspended sentence was only for three months. It was three months jail time. They managed to get it suspended, but it was also at a court that was across the country from the Leeds court, which is where he was sent to, sentenced to jail a few days ago. So what this means is while people are saying that Tommy violated his suspended sentence and for reporting on another rape gang case, that's why he was taken away and put in jail. That is not the case because within a matter of four hours, he got 13 months in jail and was sentenced at a court that was across the country from the actual court where his suspended sentence w happened and occurred and where that whole process was taking place. That is completely out of the norm. It is not how this is supposed to go forward. There's actually supposed to be a proper uh, court hearing. He's supposed to be able to have time to get a lawyer. It's supposed to happen at the court where the suspended sentence uh, took place initially. And then on top of that, so the the case that he went to the other day, they were very careful. He talked to his cameraman. They all had a conversation before going there. Let's make sure we don't violate this. We don't want Tommy to go to jail. So what we're going to do is just stand outside the courtroom and we're going to talk about facts that are already out in the media, facts that have already been reported by the biggest paper in the city. I can't remember something examiner, but they just read out the names and the charges, already public information. And the only people there that were outside the courtroom were people that were friends with Tommy, two people that he knew. So how, how were the police called for a public disturbance? How were the police called for him potentially breaching the peace? There was no one there for him to breach the peace with. 
what I think may have happened is they have been watching his live streams and waiting. They've been waiting for something to get him on because seven or eight police officers all showed up at once with a paddy wagon ready to take him away, just some BS reason to put him in cuffs. And then within four hours had a court ready. I've never heard of court proceedings going that quickly and send him to jail within that time. They have been waiting to get Tommy on something. They've been waiting for a reason to put him away. He has been such a thorn in the side of the establishment in the UK that I, I really don't doubt that this has all been planned beforehand and they were just waiting for Tommy to do something that would remotely violate this suspended sentence. Well, this is, uh, I think, astounding with regards to, I mean, thinking of the British people's respect for the law as it stands. What I can't help but think of, Lauren, is the number of times that Tommy has had death threats leveled against him, death threats leveled against his family, which are illegal and like criminally illegal, not even just in a civil. A criminal death threats is a criminal action. And as far as I understand it, he has reported these repeatedly. He's even tracked down some of the people and the police seems to have done nothing. And it's kind of hard, I think, for the British people as a whole, who particularly the people who don't have a voice. I mean, Britain's still a very class-based society, and it's lower-class British white girls in general who are being targeted by these, these uh, grooming gangs, these rape gangs. And they don't have much of a voice. And what they see is they see the police that failed to act for approximately 30 years when they got constant reports of these uh, these rape gangs and and the preying on trafficking torture uh, and and just horrifying abuses of these young white British girls and boys and so they see this not being dealt with for like thirty years and being covered up and the mainstream media being complicit in this cover up because this could have been exposed in the same way that the Catholic cl clergy abuse of children could have been exposed is even easier and then what they see is. Nobody dealing with the death threats that are raining down on Tommy Robinson, his family, his children, you name it. But then you see they leap into action and deal with him in a matter of hours. And that disparity is something that is not going to go away in the mind of the British people anytime soon. That's another part of this that's absolutely shocking is when the police got there and took Tommy away, the accused in this case that Tommy was reporting on were seen in the window pointing at one of the girls that was there with Tommy doing this, like, we're going to cut your throat, kill you kind of action. So they, they requested the cameraman and the people that were there with Tommy requested the police go up there and address this situation. Like they're getting threats from the window. The police went up there and there's this photo on Twitter. Uh, I can send it to you after this where all the police are there and they're with the judge and the judge is laughing is laughing looking out the window. They did absolutely nothing about this. And that was also the case, uh, apparently, in the courtroom when Tommy was sentenced and sent to jail for 13 months. His defense, which they just kind of, he didn't have a chance to get a proper lawyer. They just assigned him one. And the defense lawyer even said, if you send Tommy Robinson to jail, he has a bounty on his head to be killed. He has very credible threats. Last time he was in jail, they had 500 pounds and cell phones, which are difficult to get in prisons, but they had these things uh, as bounties for his head. They even found a concoction of what was it? It was melted sugar. That oh, they boiling sugar throw, water. Boiling yeah. sugar water that they wanted to throw in his face because it'll peel your skin off. And these are all credible things that were found to be true that happened in the last prison Tommy was in. So the 
the defense lawyer said, if you send Tommy to jail, it's going to be a death sentence. And allegedly, according to people that were in the courtroom, the, the judge said basically he knew what he was getting himself into. So I, I like to think a little bit uh, when I see the outrage outside Downing Street, the football lads saying, we want our freedom. We want you to free Tommy. I, I like to think that a, a little bit of the boiling blood of the British people right now, you knew what you were getting yourself into, UK government, pushing pushing us a little too far. You knew what you were getting yourself into, you know. Uh, it's so frustrating. And I just wish uh, we, we had more ability to get justice for this. But really, the, the British government are standing on our heads right now. And there's another contradiction that's been floating around in my head. I want to know what you think, which is that sort of the cover story for controlling reporting on criminal trials is the idea, well, you don't want to overtly or unjustly influence the jury. And I mean, of course, we've seen stuff happen in the American legal system where I'm thinking of like Harvey Weinstein, if it goes to trial, uh, or, you know, all the way back to OJ, it's kind of tough to push back hugely against this idea that, you know, unjust or unfair reporting or, or just whatever's going on might somehow unjustly influence a jury. And, you know, whether they deal with this through publication bans, whether they deal with this through segregating the jury and not giving them access to the media and so on, it is a big problem and it has become an even greater problem in some ways as a result of the sort of growth of the internet, growth of, of the new media and so on. So that's kind of the cover thing. And I, you know, that that's a very complex area of law and it's very challenging and so on. But what I don't understand is that if the idea or the argument is that, well, you can't publish information that might unjustly influence a jury, why would there be a ban on reporting on the arrest and incarceration of Tommy Robinson? Because there's no jury trial for yes. contempt of court. He will not get, as far as I understand it, the chance to state his case in front of a jury to be judged uh, beyond a reasonable doubt, uh, to be guilty beyond a reasonable doubt by a jury of his peers. So if there is no jury trial and the whole idea of publication bans is to not unjustly influence a jury, how can there be a publication ban on the arrest and incarceration of Tommy Robinson? That's what's so insane. And not even the beyond the there being no jury part. It's a ban on reporting factual, truthful things. You can't even just report the facts. So what this means is Tommy Robinson easily, if there weren't a few people uh, feeding us information, he could have just been disappeared overnight. And I think that's what they wanted, because when they arrested him, they secretly added him to the court listings so that even his uh, closest friends and relatives couldn't find out where the heck he was. It was just uh, some some anonymous Internet, uh, uh, I guess, so, someone who was keeping an eye on the court proceedings that found his name pop up in the system and leaked it to a few people so they could figure out where where he was. But the whole idea is. No one can talk about it. No one can report on it. No one can tell you what's going on. So Tommy Robinson, any patriot, anyone who opposes this mass statism can just be disappeared in a day, in four hours, sent to jail, and no one will know about it. It's absolutely nuts. I love the Breitbart article that came out. I don't know if anyone saw it, but Breitbart, Mir, Standard, all these different websites had to remove their articles talking about Tommy Robinson's arrest because of what the judge said. So Breitbart, in a, a kind of cheeky gesture, re-uploaded a picture with Tommy's Tommy Robinson's face all blurred out and said, redacted, has been redacted, has been redacted. And they just have a whole article that says redacted wherever his name is and whenever there's any court details. And it really shows that 1984 vibe that 
uh, there's that famous poster that says, we need freedom of speech because, and then the rest of it's scratched out, you know, because we can't even know what the arguments are for any of this or against it if we don't have it. We can't even know what the arguments for or against Tommy are if you can't report on it. And the public deserve to know in this case. Absolutely. And certainly, like you say, when there's not even a jury to be influenced, the only possible expl explanation can be it's political. And they know people will be outraged over this injustice as they sh as they should be. Well, and Tommy was, uh, while he was uh, questioning one of these alleged criminals, was pushed uh, rather aggressively. And of course, the cops, well, we didn't see anything, you know, it's on, on video. And this is not being consistently applied. And this is the issue as well. So even if we were to say that there's a potential that everything the government did was legitimate and fair and right and good. They have a perception problem. They have a PR problem, which is that there's a lot of people in England uh, who, you know, they've read uh, Tommy's uh, book, Enemy of the State. They have followed his um, exciting interactions with the UK government. And there is a perception out there that he's being unjustly targeted and persecuted by his own government for his political opinions, for his opinions on Islam, for his opinions on uh, immigration, for his opinions on a wide variety of, of matters. And so given that this perception is out there, if the government believes that what they're doing is legitimate, they should just call a press conference, they should invite everyone in, and they should just take all the questions, you know, I mean, as they've always told us, hey, you don't mind, you shouldn't mind being examined if you have nothing to hide. And so they should just open the gates and let everyone uh, in to, to question them and explain everything that happened and none of that is occurring. I don't imagine that press conference is imminent and the reporting on the matter is being um, suppressed in a, in a very totalitarian manner. Yeah, well, you can imagine if this were the case of some kind of left-wing hero, like uh, a, a minority randomly being shot or put in jail, that would become the, the top story on Vice and certainly every foreign media outlet. And the government would have some sort of massive press conference, probably a truth and reconciliation process to go through. There'd be comments from Justin Trudeau from the, the whole world would be outraged. But because it's Tommy Robinson, unfortunately, He's he's just he's just too spicy for for the world to defend his freedom. He's a little too much of a patriot for us to care about that. The biggest thing that scares me here, though, and I think we've talked about this before, is when you get put in a position where you are being taken away and put in jail for your political opinions, where you, you, you'll you even be killed in jail, like this uh, man who threw bacon at a mosque, he was killed during his sentence because he was kind of in the anti-Islam anti crew, where you, you get banned from countries because of your political opinion, as I have been. What are the British people to do? They can't speak up anymore. They can't even listen to media telling them their opinions. When they disagree, it's not even just disagreeing with the state. When the state won't enforce the values that the people want, they voted to leave the European Union. They voted to have a culture with Western values. When the state won't even enforce the laws that the people want, what are you supposed to do? The only ending I can see to this is violence. When you're not allowed to speak, you speak with your fists. And I'm not saying that's a good thing. I'm saying that's an inevitable thing. And it's terrifying. Well, it's funny because when you, you quote, was it John F. Kennedy's quote, that those who make peace or revolution impossible make violent revolution inevitable. When we say that 
the breakdown of the respect for the rule of law, the perception that the government is acting against the interests of the people. And, you know, if you're in England, you can't help but notice that Brexit seems to be taking years and years and years and years and years and delays and concessions and years and years. But they want to take Tommy Robinson off the street. Boom. Four hours done and dusted. And when we say that if free speech is suppressed, if political opinions are disappeared, and we say this is going to escalate violence, and people think that somehow we're rubbing our hands with glee or, or approving of this or think it's good. No. If, you go, if you're a chain smoker, you go to your doctor and he says chain smoking is probably going to make you really, really sick, yea, verily, unto death. He's telling you that so you can stop smoking and avoid the outcome. So the, the predictions of uh, violence and so on are, are not made with any pleasure, certainly not made with any anticipation, but made to say or, or put forward to say, let's avoid this if at all humanly possible, because once things get to that uh, degree, then um, freedoms will be lost for quite a long time. Yeah, it's it's just a fact. I can hardly, I mean, seeing guys that were in their like 50s climbing up the gates of Downing Street yelling, I can hardly blame them. I can't. What else are they supposed to do? They have kids that are growing up in London that they know are going to be potential victims of terrorism, that they know are going to be potential victims of rape gangs. They they love their country. They love their culture. They want to preserve that. And is that so wrong? Is it so wrong that they want to preserve the land and values that they grew up in. Every other culture in the world, every other group in the world, they're protecting their values and their right to have have an identity is tantamount. We, we Vice, mainstream media, CNN, they talk about this all the time. We must protect their right to have a future in existence, all of this. But for some reason, when it's the British people who want to do this, no, that's a little too far. And I, I understand the rage of these people. I, I am never someone who gets into scuffs or fights with the cops. I never push back. I always just do what they say. But I I can't help but understand the guys who are completely outraged and doing these things. I mean, you've taken away their right to speak. What What's your next move, government? It's going to be fascinating to see if this continues down this route, if people continue to be arrested, if Katie Hopkins or Raheem Kassam are taken away in cuffs next if Tommy Robinson dies in jail, will that be will, will that be the last straw? Will that set something off in in the British people? Something that we may not want to see, but will that break the camel's back? Who knows? Well, we have seen, of course, in the past, when the perception of not even a majority, but a significant proportion of the population views their government as an occupying force that is serving the whims of those opposed to the wishes and will of the general population of the domestic population, well, things get uh, pretty heated pretty quickly. And uh, of course, it is our goal not to get there. Now, the other thing that's really fascinating is when these kinds of events float up, it's kind of not only is it a trial balloon, but I think it bespeaks a certain confidence on the part of the government. In other words, if there was universal outrage, regardless of the content of Tommy Robinson's um, arguments, his data, his philosophies or whatever, regardless of the content, if, if there was universal outrage at, at how he was treated for his journalism, I think the government would have recognized that they had gone too far and they would have to back down and they'd have to try and do some kind of reform and all the things which would perhaps even open up free speech a little bit more. These things, which are terrible, can be turned into a positive if there's enough outrage and pushback over the actions of the government. But they must have been pretty certain 
that they could do what they did. They must have been pretty certain that not just the media in the UK, but the media around the world would avoid reporting on this story, that that his story would be disappeared as, as efficiently as he was disappeared. And seeing this from the mainstream media, from the left as a whole, who have stood up for some pretty wretched people in the past, who have defended cop killers, who have defended uh, uh, thugs and criminals and, and communists. Well, but I repeat myself. I mean, the media has defended some pretty wretched people in the past. And the fact that they're not outraged and pushing back against this, I think has kind of shown the split in society, that they'll fight for their team, but they won't fight for anyone else's team. And that means that it's not principles that they're following. It's just in-group preference. And that is a really chilling thing to see. During the um, 2016 election, we had the conversation a lot about how if Trump does not win this election, the Republicans will never win another election again because there'll be so much immigration into the U.S. that it'll just keep going Democrat, Democrat, Democrat. They'll completely open the borders. And that's the turning point, it seems, that the U.K. is at now where they've hit that uh, threshold of we have indoctrinated enough people and we have replaced enough people that we can do whatever the heck we want. The British people, the actual patriots, the actual people with historical ties to this land who died to protect this little island, they are now a minority in the largest cities in the UK. So if we decide we want to imprison them for speaking up against our progressive far leftist globalist plans, well, we can do that now because they are no longer the majority. They are the minority. And how how much more time do the British people, the actual British people with British and Western values have to push back against this before they're replaced even more and even more and even more and before they are indoctrinated further and further and further by these socialist policies? It's it's getting it's getting really scary right now. And I'm talking to British friends of mine who are saying, how the heck do I get out of this country? In fact, I just, in Toronto here, I ran into two British guys who were, they, they noticed me and they're like, oh, big fan of your stuff. I'm so happy to be out of the UK. I was terrified being there. Is it an abandoned ship moment or is there still a last chance to save it in your opinion? I, I wrestle with that question on a daily and sometimes middle of the nightly basis, Lauren. I don't, I don't know. I mean, one of the things that to me would have been a flashpoint for change was the emergence of these systematic rape gangs largely perpetrated by immigrants, uh, Muslim immigrants, a lot of them from Pakistan, that according to some estimates, you know, preyed upon, raped, pillaged, tortured, and trafficked tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of British girls uh, over the last couple of decades. The emergence of that, because people think, oh, well, it's Rotherham, like it's just Rotherham, or it's Telford, or it's just Telford. No, the list of the towns wherein this has emerged um, just goes on in a depressingly long montage from hell. And if a people are not roused to action by the systematic torture, rape, and in many ways, reproductive destruction, right? I mean, this isn't, to me, it, it comes across as an act of war to destroy uh, young women to that degree, to the point where they may not be able to have children, they may not be able to pair bond, they may not be able to get married in any productive or efficient way. That is um, almost a genetic war against the domestic population. If that wasn't enough for people to do something, and again, the question of what to do is is not my field of expertise. I'm a theoretician, so uh, pragmatic and practical action is uh, like I'm a blueprint guy, not a building guy. 
So the practical actions are sort of beyond my area of expertise, but I just remember thinking at the time, if that's not enough for change, I really don't know what is. Mm-hmm. And that, that question of, because I remember watching, especially in 2016, when these terror attacks were happening constantly, every single month, I was like, this is going to be the one. This is going to be the one that red pills the populace. This is going to be the one that makes everyone stand up and say no more. And then it just kind of, there's outrage, then it fades away. Outrage, and then it fades away. We go back into our normal life. This is part and parcel of a big city. We'll just build more barriers. We'll surround Buckingham Palace and fences and gates and car stoppers. It, it's nuts. They just, I mean, last time I was in the UK before I was banned, going to the Christmas festivals that had these giant yellow gates surrounding them because they didn't want trucks to run you over. It's absolutely bizarre. And I even here in Canada, I went to go see some fireworks a few days ago and they'd shut down all the streets and my Uber driver nonchalantly just kind of said, oh, yeah, they probably don't want cars running over all the people. I'll have to let you out of the Uber here. And I, I yesterday I was also walking through the street and saw a small Pegida protest. It was like four people, and they're surrounded by a gate and like 20 cops, and then there's a ton of Antifa on the other side. And that's what it feels like right now. We're facing a behemoth, a behemoth of media, government, educational propaganda against us and to try to think of the steps that we can take to change this. I mean, we're trying to do this with the internet content, get the facts out there. People can't act on anything if they don't have the knowledge of what's actually going on. Uh, I guess all I can do is hope for millennials and Gen Z that they work their way into the institutions, much like the left did with their long march through the institutions, that they work their way into the communities and the education systems so that at least there's a fair balance of information. And maybe I hope there's no point being totally blackpilled. You might as well throw yourself into the into the ocean if you're going to do that. You, sorry about the sirens out there. Actually, I, I just wanted to point out that I'm never that comfortable when we're chatting and there's sirens in the background. I just I just wanted to point that out. <laughs> uh, never good. Now, okay, so I was just saying in terms of solutions and so on, um, the, the one thing that has not been talked about, I mean, I've been talking about it for a while, and I mean, whether you agree or not, I'm certainly happy to hear your thoughts. I think that as long as people from the Middle East can make 10 times their income by not working, by coming to the West, that is so much of a pull, that is so much of a draw that I don't see how borders are really going to work. I'm, I'm fine with borders. I'm fine with the control over borders. But I think as long as there's such a glittering prize in terms of the money that you can gain from domestic taxpayers by coming into a country, I can't see how borders are going to work when there's such a one, you know, like, I mean, there are bank vaults that are supposed to be impregnable and people like just do anything they can to to get in there. And so I think that one of the things that I mean, I've talked about for many decades, even before I, I had a show, is the question of the welfare state and the question of the massive trillions and trillions of dollars of income redistribution that goes from domestic taxpayers to migrants to to immigrants and so on. If that process continues, I don't see how protests are going to do that much. It's the old thing, like, I mean, if you if you leave a whole bunch of gold bars on your front lawn, people are going to find a way to get them, even if you have dogs, even if you have a high wall, you know, like you have to take the gold out of public consumption. And then I think you have because people who want to come to Western countries, 
want to come to some want to come to Western countries because they want freedom, because they want to be able to have, live in a society where church and state are separated, because they want economic opportunity, because they want freedom of speech. And I think that's great. You know, the more the merrier. But the problem is because we have so much money that is being handed over. You know, talking to a guy in Europe, you know, like thousands of dollars a month and a free MacBook Air and internet access and free housing and free healthcare and free dentistry. If you have those kinds of prizes, you can't ever differentiate those who are coming to the West for freedom and those who are coming to the West for free stuff. As long as those prizes remain open to uh, people coming into the country, I don't see any way to stop this. You know, human beings are responding to incentives and the incentive is just so high. So to me, if I were to do something from, from that standpoint, I would say, look, the welfare state was a fine idea, but it's been, it's been a disaster. It's been a disaster for the domestic population. It's been a disaster for immigration. It's been a disaster for the budget. It's been a disaster for debt. It's been a disaster for marriage and pair bonding and, and just about everything you could conceive of. And it's kind of new in Western history. I was tried once before in England uh, centuries ago called Spenum Land, which people should look up. I did a radio show on this years ago. And it was a disaster then too. The forced redistribution of income is morally wrong and has horrifying consequentialities, which is why it was the church and private institutions that gave out charity before. Now, if there's any possibility to rouse public sentiment to do away with the welfare state and rely instead on charity and pair bonding and all the things that human society evolved to, to support in that way, then I think you can get something very solid done. But that is a pretty challenging case to make in the public square these days. It's shocking how quickly we managed to destroy our countries. And like you were saying, welfare state, fairly new, mass immigration, fairly new. I mean, when when a lot of our philosophers were writing their great pieces, they didn't have planes, trains, and automobiles to even take into consideration when they had debates about open or closed borders, whatever it may be. And I've always had it described to me in the way of like rolling out a carpet. It's really damn easy to roll out that progressive carpet and for it to go all the way down, but rolling it back (laughs) takes a long time. So we have been able to introduce these new ideas to our society. We never did it in a conservative way where we just kind of dipped our toes in. Let's test the waters and see how this immigration thing goes. Give it 50 years, see what the results are. Uh, let's, Let's test the waters, see how this welfare thing goes. No, we went all out. And this is a whole new crisis that we can't really look back in human history. I mean, other than, sure, we can look at kind of Roman history, the Gauls, all that. But it's still very different in the sense that we have weapons of mass destruction where just one of these people can get a machine gun and kill tons of you if if they're bad, uh, where we have planes that can bring in tons of people from way across the world who would never be able to come to that culture, who are hardly compatible. And we're facing this new problem as if it's going to go by, no problem, easy peasy, we'll figure it out. And it is not working out. It is demonstrably not working out. Here in Canada, where I live, even where people would say that multiculturalism has been the most successful We are still, sure, multicultural is a good word because we are not one cohesive culture. We are not homogenous. We are all separated. They call it a mosaic, a cultural mosaic, where none of us are talking to each other or working together for the same goals. We're all working for our own goals. And parts of that mosaic are getting bigger than others and engulfing other parts of that mosaic. And it's not going to be such a pretty picture when it's just one color in that stained glass and one culture and one idea that has absolutely wiped out all the rest because it's it's a totalitarian one. And of course, that's happening at a far more rapid pace in, in the UK and in Europe, which I suppose is a bit of a white pill in the sense that 
much like Australia, where we're going to be speaking to soon, much like Canada, which is a little more screwed, and America, they can look to Europe and see what's happening in Paris, see what's happening in London and say, maybe we don't want to go that way. And because we have that 10 year delay in a lot of other Western countries, maybe we can at least uh, see a, see the warning signs in Europe as it gets worse and choose a different route. Yeah. I mean, I think of the people I know who had family members who were addicts and suffered horrible negative consequences, even unto death. And they were like, wow, I'm never going to touch alcohol. Wow, I'm never going to smoke because I've seen the outcome. And hopefully that that can be sort of goosed into some sort of change, of course, because there's this foundational question. And it's a philosophical question, which makes it sound abstract. But I think it really is kind of at the heart of all of this stuff is if we say diversity is a value, then we say, okay, lots of different perspectives are important. And I agree with that. But first of all, Europe was very diverse before mass immigration, lots of different cultures and languages and histories and religions and so on. So diversity just generally means non-whites. I mean, let's be sort of frank about that. But the question with diversity is a value. Okay, so then we should say that diversity is a good thing. Then what happens when under the name of diversity, you import cultures that do not believe that diversity is a good thing? Mm-hmm. If you say, well, Respect for homosexuality is a virtue. Sure, it is. What happens when you bring in cultures that condemn homosexuality? If you say equality of opportunity for women is a virtue, sure it is. What happens when you bring in cultures in the, under the banner of diversity that do not believe that? In fact, oppose it very strongly. So saying diversity is a value and therefore we should bring in cultures opposed to diversity is one of these weird logical contradictions, the snake eating its own tail, a self-detonating argument that's not even allowed to be discussed and and talked about, and yet we just plow on as if it's supposed to work. And I'm sort of increasingly of the opinion now is not supposed to work. It's supposed to cause problems. It's supposed to cause friction. It's, you know, we all know what happens when countries historically can't pay their debts. They go to war. Well, maybe this is another way of creating conflict to bypass the fact that governments can't pay their debts. Well, there you go. Let's say maybe the maybe maybe the welfare state is going to run out and that'll solve our problem and also cause a lot of chaos. But they'll certainly stop coming to the UK once uh, its economy's crashed and there's no more gold bars on the lawn. for them Yes, to but grab. what happens to all the people who are here who are dependent yeah. and have made their decisions on the dependence of the welfare state because integration or assimilation used to occur? For a couple of reasons. One is that you couldn't economically survive without learning the dominant language and the dominant culture. And secondly, when you left your original country, you left the social bubble, the political bubble, the economic bubble, the language bubble, and you came to the new country. And, you know, you'd kind of often huddle in Chinatown or Little Italy or Little Greece with those who were like you. But by the second generation, that usually was, that was sort of a pause in the assimilation idea. But now with social media and so on, and with the welfare state, you can create your own, quote, ghettos, your no-go zones. You don't have to assimilate in order to survive economically. You don't have to integrate. You don't have to learn the dominant language. And because of the internet, you can immerse yourself in the culture you left, and you can socially immerse yourself in the culture that you left. And this slide towards assimilation that occurs for incentive reasons, well, those incentives have all been undercut. And people can now bring the internet bubble of their culture with them and... There is no assimilation to values that are 
you know, no assimilation to the value of diversity and so on. And that is going to cause a problem because what happens, and this is the question I always have for people on the left, okay, what happens when the money runs out? You can't raise enough taxes to pay the debt, let alone the unfunded liabilities. What happens when the money runs out? And it's tough enough when the money runs out and you have some shared values and cultural homogeneity. If you have fragmented groups who are suspicious of, hostile to, or indifferent towards each other, when the money runs out, in-group preference tends to kick in most ferociously. Hey, everybody's fine when there's a buffet, but when there's like one loaf of bread left and 10 people from 10 different cultures, well, or 10 people from five different cultures, there's going to be a lot of in-group preference, and that's my concern. Looking, looking at the UK, it feels like we're all living in a pressure cooker right now. Like everyone can see that something's wrong. I, I speak to even even liberals and they tell me, yeah, I, I know there's something off. I know something is not quite working in this system we've employed. And I, I, the whole diversity is our strength thing. Come on. You look at how birds flight patterns. They, they fly all in the same direction, all the same way. So they can block the wind and then they trade positions, go to the front. They all have the same kind of patterns because it's a, it's a strength to have that kind of homogeneity among them, the the going in the same direction. If they're all flying in different directions, it's not going to work. And that's a pattern that is repeated throughout nature and society and everything. And I just don't know how anyone in the right mind can pretend that diversity uh, is a strength. They certainly don't employ that in uh, workplaces. They certainly don't employ that in, in their, their own lives. Or academia. If diversity is a strength, where are all the non-leftists in academia? Because surely they should want those diverse opinions coming in. But no, it's got to be the mono-echo culture of everyone to the left of Chairman Mao. Right, right. And I think... I keep coming back to the, the Tommy thing. We're living in this pressure cooker. We're all waiting for something to happen. How long are we going to be these frogs boiling in the water? I've been meaning to make a video on this, actually. Every time I step out of my house in Toronto, it's terrifying. I walked over to my local library, and they've got transgender reading sessions right now uh, for kids. I don't know, drag queen reading sessions. They've got all of these drag queens reading to five-year-olds, and I'm just like, yep, that's normal. Walk by, they've got murals called Diversity and Sparkles, and it's minorities covered in sparkles, and it's like oppressed, marginalized bodies. Walk down the next road, it's the whole black block is there doing an anti-racist rally. Next road, and I'm not kidding, This is, I, I have video of this because I just decided to walk down the street and take some videos. Next road, some guy is asking me for money so that they can extend Black History Month to a second month. This is just daily life walking in the city in Toronto. How much longer can this last? How much longer can the victim Olympics go on? How much longer can the mass immigration go on? How, how much how much more warning can we give? Well, apparently not much more because you're going to go to jail for it. You're going to be banned from countries for it. How much longer are we going to be safe to do these podcasts and these talks in Canada? I don't know. I don't know. I, how, much long, how much longer do we have? <laughs> well, and this is partly why in our conversations we talked about Australia. Because Australia, as we point out at axiomatic.events, the, the website to buy the tickets, it's kind of at a crossroads. And it's interesting because we want to say, here's all the great stuff we're going to talk about in Australia, but we don't want to be that trailer for the usual suspects that kind of gives away the whole film. So um, I certainly, it's going to be new uh, information, new arguments, new data. Uh, the thing I actually enjoy the most, I like giving a, a speech and, and that's great fun. 
But what I enjoy the most is the Q&As, you know, the, the criticisms, the comments, the questions uh, that thrust and parry with the audience is really great. And we're going to do the plan is you know, solo speeches, relatively short, at least for me. And uh, then we're going to combine our uh, intellectual uh, juggernauts, so to speak, for for the audience Q&A, which I'm really uh, looking forward to. And what are you most looking forward to about the Australian experience? Well, I've never done a joint speaking event, so that should take a little bit of the pressure off me. No, but I've always enjoyed when I do speaking at universities, in, engaging with the crowd, getting them to laugh, as well as talking about talking about issues that they would never be allowed to talk about in their university classrooms, even with their friends on the street, because they're too afraid of getting fired. They're too afraid of getting kicked out of class. They're things that are constantly going on in people's minds as they walk down the street and they look at what's happening in their society, and they can't address any of it because of the deafening silence and pressure in our culture to be politically correct. So just being able to say that on a stage, what people are thinking on a stage in front of tons of people, talk about the problems that they're never allowed to address, I think is so much fun. It's shocking for the media there. I know people are going to be infuriated to hear us addressing issues that we're supposed to just shut up and be good about. Uh, but I think everyone in the audience is going to really, really enjoy that. And it's going to be a relief of a lot of pressure for them, a lot of pressure to shut up and conform. And this event will will be the exact opposite of that. <laughs> yeah, because there are a lot of people out there who still have a lot to lose by opposing political correctness. But you and I have been through the ringer. We've had our reputation shredded as much as possible. We have nothing to lose. So I think we can bring a refreshing kind of honesty to that. So I really, really look forward to seeing people there. Just a reminder that the tickets are on sale and just went on sale uh, today, I think it was. The website is axiomatic.events. Again, Melbourne, Friday, July 20th, 2018. Perth, Sunday, July 22nd. Adelaide, Thursday, July 26th. Sydney, Saturday, July 28th. Brisbane, Sunday, July 29th and early August. We're aiming for Auckland, New Zealand, because I really want to see Hobbiton. So um, thanks a lot for your time today. And of course, uh, just a reminder to come and see Lauren and I. Uh, it's going to be a fantastic once in a lifetime event, and it's going to be an enormous amount of fun. Thanks so much for your time today. Cheers. Thanks for having me.